Hey, everybody, this is Ben Bowman and Alex Titus. Welcome back to another episode of The Oregon Bridge. Putin, by stealing Crimea, by waging war for seven years now in eastern Ukraine, he has amplified that sense of Ukrainian identity. He has really pissed off a lot of Ukrainians. For a while, I think his strategy was, well, we may not be able to occupy it, but we can destroy it. We can turn it into rubble. There's always a problem with autocrats getting accurate information. The U.S. can and should play a significant role. We have a role to play in the world and can make a difference. All right, folks. Today, we are very excited. We have a very special guest, perhaps our most high-profile guest in the history of our podcast, Nicholas Kristoff. Some people in Oregon know Nick Kristoff from recently running for Oregon governor before being disqualified by the Secretary of State. But before that, he spent many years as a writer for the New York Times, an editor at the New York Times. And he also owns a cider orchard in Yamhill, Oregon, which is where he was coming to us from on this Zoom call. So a little bit about Nick's background and why we wanted to talk to him in particular on this special episode covering what's happening in Ukraine. His biography says he's been to over 150 countries. He's won two Pulitzer Prizes for his international reporting. He actually has spent time on the ground in Ukraine, not during this conflict, but previously. And as you'll hear in the episode, he's got some family ties to the region as well. And you'll hear us discuss this throughout. We'll put a link to the show notes here. But Nick writes a Substack where he's been writing about Ukraine pretty frequently. So we'll put a link to that so folks can follow along. But Alex, I thought it was one of our most interesting conversations so far. What were your high point takeaways from the conversation? Yeah, it was really interesting. And I think, you know, obviously a lot of people have been wondering what's going on in Ukraine. I think the episode you did with Marshall was a little different. I thought it was really high level, whereas this one, we really get into the weeds, you really get into the details. We talk about what it would mean to, you know, implement a no-fly zone, talk about the role of journalism and journalists in covering war. It was really, really interesting, especially to hear from him, as obviously he's covered some of the world's greatest conflicts, basically, over the past two decades. So, yeah, he's really interesting. He has, it's really clear, too, that he's, like, really thought this stuff out, and he has really concise opinions on all of it. So, yeah, I thought it was an excellent episode, and he... Uh, I think you kind of joked at the end, or maybe this is actually when we were off camera, but like, oh, that was a lot of foreign policy and none of us are experts or whatever. But he clearly really knows his stuff on all of this and he has really nuanced opinions. So I thought it was I thought it was a great show. Yeah. And that's what I was going to say is what we tried to do. And I hope we succeeded in doing in this episode is like make the situation in Ukraine accessible and understandable for people who are not experts and are not following it every day. Because Alex, neither you or I are foreign policy experts. We are reading the news and and trying to stay up to date with what's happening. But hopefully you'll see that this episode kind of demystifies some of what's happening. Like, for instance, we break down what is a no-fly zone? What does it entail? What are the pros and cons of the policy? Nick gives his opinion. So we hope it's useful in that sense. But before we jump into the episode, quick plugs. If you're listening to this on audio format, we also have a YouTube channel, which is growing pretty steadily. So if you're interested in listening to our podcast or watching our podcast on YouTube, we'll put a link to that in the show notes as well. And Titus, plug the uh, Substack. Cool. And of course, you have to give us five stars if your platform does so much allow that. And then, yeah, you should definitely check out our Substack. We'll also be posting the episode there in the weekly liftoff newsletter that Ben writes on Oregon politics. And that is theorganway.substack.com. We'll put a link to that in the notes as well. All right. Thanks everybody for listening and we hope you enjoy the interview. All right, Nick Kristoff, welcome to the Oregon Bridge. How are you? Good to be with you. Greetings from Yam Hill. Well, if you would have told me three months ago that I was very anxious to talk to Nick Kristoff, but not about the governor's race, (laughs) about the situation in Ukraine, I would have not thought that that made very much sense. Um, But here we are. But before we jump into the Ukraine situation, obviously, we're on the heels of your departure from the race for governor. And we kind of just wanted to check in on that. You know, you came from the world of journalism and sort of poured yourself into this political campaign. Now that you're sort of, it's in the rearview mirror, was your experience bad enough that you don't ever want to do it again? (laughs) Are you open to doing it again? I'm sure you learned lots of lessons, but kind of curious now that it's been a few weeks, what your retrospective view of it is. 
I guess my main retrospective view was that I was struck by the extent of the problems around the state. You know, I tended to think of the housing crisis as, you know, largely kind of a I don't know, a Portland, Salem, Eugene one. And what really struck me was that it's just a problem. It's a problem in the coast. It's a problem in, you know, Burns. Who would have thought that Burns would have a housing crisis? And that, I don't know, I'm, I'm not as optimistic as I, as I wish I, I could be about where we stand in addressing uh, some of those issues. Likewise, education. I think that, you know, the best metric for where a society will be 25 years down the road is how well it educates its kids. And obviously we don't do great by that standard. So, you know, the, the process, you know, I'm always kind of a reporter. So my, my campaign <laughs> was kind of a process of reporting and did underscore that, you know, we've got some real challenges and I hope the other folks in the race, you know, undertake really transformational change. Have you decided, or maybe you don't want to say, but have you decided how you're going to vote in that primary? As um, a I'm, I, I'm not going to, I, pro well, so far, uh, so far, at least, I have not made an endorsement in the primary, and I'm not sure if I will. I'm thinking about that. I'm being charmed by all corners, uh, but I'm, I'm not sure. sure I'll weigh in. <laughs> I'm sure. And then last one on the governor's race, is running for office, again, something you're open to, or was it just such a negative experience that that might not be something that you want to spend your time on? Or still oh, yeah. I mean, it wasn't a negative experience. It, it, oh, good. It really wasn't. Uh, I mean, it was, you know, it's a grand opportunity to meet a lot of people, but it was a really unusual conjunction of factors. I mean, on the one hand, I felt that Oregon was really in crisis. I thought there was, a, I mean, sort of frankly, a fairly weak field that gave me a good chance of actually winning. And I thought that Oregon really felt ready for, uh, you know, to embark on in new directions so that a reformist governor would actually have a real opportunity to build consensus and undertake substantial change. And I think it's, you know, somewhat unlikely that those uh, stars align ever again. And, you know, and I love <laughs> other things that I've done. I have no, it's not as if I have some great hankering to be a politician <laughs> whatsoever. You know, I, I loved my previous gig. And so, um, Never say never, but I, I I don't think that's something that's likely. Well, if only because it brought you onto the Oregon Bridge podcast, <laughs> we are grateful <laughs> for your previous run. <laughs> and so with that, we do want to transition to Ukraine because sort of ironically, you're probably one of the Oregonians with the most unique perspective on the situation in Ukraine. I'll give a very high level overview as an outsider layman, and then we'll jump into a few more specific questions. So you know, essentially, Vladimir Putin is, from what I can tell, from what I can read, is trying to recreate the old Soviet bloc. He feels like the Soviet Union was badly mistreated when it fell. He doesn't recognize the legitimacy of the Ukrainian people as an independent people. But it's not just Ukraine. He's sort of been on a campaign to win back territory for several years now. So he fortunately badly miscalculates what the international response will be to his incursion into Ukraine. And there's a sort of unprecedented economic, if not military, pushback on his invasion. And I think now we're, what, three or four weeks into the war. And I saw an S I think NATO is estimating 7,000 to 15,000 Russian troops have passed away, have been killed. I'm sure that there, I don't know what the number of Ukrainian civilians is or Ukrainian military, but I'm sure that is a high number as well. We're seeing civilian targets having missiles launched at them by the Russian military. But you were telling us just before we started recording that we're recording this on March 25th, but apparently there was some sort of announcement from Russian media about phase two of the war. Can you tell us a little bit about what you just heard? Sure. And I uh, just also a couple of things that I should mention, you know, we talked about the governor's race, my wife, Cheryl, she jokes that running for governor may have helped save my life, because if I hadn't run, then I'd be in Ukraine right now getting bombed and shot at. And so the, you know, the upside of a, of a governor's campaign, even a very, a fair point. very unsuccessful one. <laughs> um, yeah. And the other link to Ukraine is that my dad actually grew up in what is now southern Ukraine outside the city of Chernivtsi, and he fled in 1944, was a refugee, wow. and then in 1952, the First Presbyterian Church in Portland and a couple of families in Portland sponsored his way to the U.S., and that is why... I am an Oregonian. So, uh, you know, it's, and I've been back to his ancestral village. And so, you know. So, it, real quick before we go to the Russian, did your dad identify as Russian, Ukrainian, Soviet? What, how did he consider himself? It's kind of fascinating. So, my dad, the, the family was ethnically Armenian, but they, 
at some point switched to really using Polish more than any other language in home. And in the period when my dad was growing up until 1944, it was actually part of, uh, it was a province of Romania that the Soviet Union grabbed. And so my dad, when, you know, he would tell people he was uh, Romanian. My aunt would tell people that she was Armenian. My uncle would tell people that he was Polish. Uh, (laughs) When my aunt would telephone, my dad, uh, she and my dad would speak together in Romanian. My uncle would call up. My dad would speak to him in Polish. So they were a very mixed up family. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And it's just a reminder of, you know, that, of how complicated that area is, you know, in so many ways. So bring us to the Russian announcement today. What did we hear? So the Russian military gave a uh, very upbeat assessment of how brilliantly their military, their special operation had gone in Ukraine. (laughs) And, you know, that they said they lost, they gave a number of casualties, which was absurdly low. But what was most interesting was that they said that they, uh, that they had never planned to actually occupy Western Ukraine or to seize Western Ukraine or to have regime change there, that they were really just focused on the Donbass region and the in the Far East, and that they were simply trying to sort of interrupt supply lines from Ukraine. And that now they were, you know, now with that mission accomplished, now they were going to focus on the Donbass. And so look, events changed really quickly, but I found that encouraging because it is possible to see that as Putin essentially declaring victory. And historically, he more often has doubled down. And uh, when he's losing, uh, you saw that in Chechnya. And so, you know, if he doubles down, that would suggest he might be using chemical weapons, might be using even a tactical nuclear weapon. If instead he's going to declare a victory and just continue to bully and occupy parts of the Donbass region, boy, that would be a huge step forward. And that would be a, uh, would outline possibilities for some kind of a peace deal. So that's interesting because there's been a lot of talk in the first few weeks of this war of like, what is the off-ramp here? It seems like Putin might be trying mm-hmm. to create an off-ramp for himself because it's going so poorly for him. That's right. And it looks as if there are some uh, soldiers, some Russian soldiers in the northwest of the country who are at risk of being encircled. They have had huge problems maintaining their supply lines. You know, they may be running out of ammunition as well as food. And so that may be part of his desire to, you know, declare a victory and retreat effectively. Mm. It became clear, I think, pretty early that he wasn't going to succeed in, you know, simply um, occupying Kiev and even Western Ukraine and and making Ukraine disappear. And so then for a while, I think his strategy was, well, we may not be able to occupy it, but we can destroy it. We can turn it into rubble. We can do to, to Kiev what we did to Aleppo or to Grozny and Chechnya. And you know, now they're having trouble with even that strategy. And so I would really like to think that we may be now embarked on a third stage in which they declare victory, save face, and um, you know maybe Ukraine pledges that it will never join NATO, which Zelensky seems prepared to to say since they wouldn't join NATO anyway. And you know that one can imagine a negotiated deal along those lines. So this is a a very broad question. People will be talking about this for years, but just kind of curious for you to riff on this is you've obviously been following this really closely. You've written a lot of pieces about the conflict on your Substack. What went wrong for Russia? I mean, of course, I don't think Putin is a dumb guy by any means. I think he's actually been able to exercise his power pretty well to continue to expand his influence over the years. But clearly this was a major miscalculation, I think is even understating it. This is frankly a disaster. Just looking at both from the saving face perspective, and then also from if the casualty numbers are anywhere near right of what they're suggested, like, oof, they were obviously not expecting this. But why, I'm curious from your perspective, why do you think this was so downplayed, right? In the sense of that many of the reports were saying, oh, yeah, they were going to send in some special forces, basically, nobody was going to fight, the country was going to collapse, it was going to, I think they even estimated they would take the country within 72 hours, which I always thought was ridiculous. But I mean, clearly, there is, you know, people whose jobs in Russia, trying to figure this stuff out, basically. I'm just kind of curious of your high level, like what went wrong for Russia? I think that they and everybody else exaggerated the proficiency of the Russian military, and in particular, in terms of managing things like logistics. You know, you have had 
apparently Russian soldiers who've gotten frostbite and have had to uh, return because they didn't have adequate clothing. You've had Russian soldiers who were breaking into homes to get food to eat because they were didn't have any food. And so I think there was an exaggeration of how well the Russian military was going to do, how well it was prepared. I think there was a complete underestimation of the Ukrainian military and of the West's, the degree to which this would resonate in the West and the West would respond. I think that Putin thought that Western Europe in particular was so reliant on Russian energy that it would roll over and you know completely miscalculated. And I think that Putin also didn't understand that he had actually helped create a strong Ukrainian identity. It is true historically that there were many Ukrainians who were Russian speakers who had warm ties with Russia. And, you know, it less than a decade ago, Ukrainians elected a pro-Russian leader. So there was a time when that argument might have been plausible. But Putin, by stealing Crimea, by waging war for seven years now in eastern Ukraine, he has amplified that sense of Ukrainian identity. He has really pissed off a lot of Ukrainians, to use a technical military term. (laughs) I think he didn't appreciate the degree to which uh, that had changed, to which he was responsible for it. And I guess more broadly, there's always a problem with autocrats getting accurate information. Hmm. And I mean, it can be a problem in democracies too, as we saw in the (laughs) run up to the Iraq war, but it's particularly a problem with autocrats that they get yes men around them who tell them how brilliant they are, who don't disagree. And, you know, that was how Chairman Mao managed to create the world worst famine in world history in the 1958 to 61. And Putin, I think, particularly during COVID, he was surrounded by just a tiny group of people who kept amplifying his chauvinism, his his nationalism, and told him he was brilliant. And result has uh, been this catastrophe for him in Ukraine. And I hope that's going to lead to a further catastrophe for him uh, back home in Moscow in ways that will undermine his rule. Actually, I want to I want to talk to you about that a little bit further, too. So there's been a number of polls within Russia, both state-sponsored polls, but then as well as independent polls. I'm no expert on polling. We also make fun of polling on the show all of the time. Uh, And I imagine independent polling in Russia probably has some sort of state influence with it too. But, you know, basically the polls from the state and this independent poll said that approximately two-thirds, 70% of Russians support what's going on in Ukraine right now. I'm curious because I feel like a lot of the sort of dialogue that we see in Western media, right, is that it's either Russians speaking out opposing the war or it's people being arrested for protesting it. And obviously, I think that the numbers are probably slit. Maybe they're a little bit slated up or down either way. But I do think it's true that probably a number of Russians do support what's going on in Ukraine and do support Putin's decision. I'm curious if one, you agree with that. And then two, sort of from your perspective of like, how does that make us feel about the conflict, right? In terms of that, I think you know, many of us think this is Putin's war of aggression. This is a terrible thing. But, you know, people in this country are basically supporting it. And I think it's Zelensky talked about this a little bit, right? This could kind of be the first small conflict for a more broad one that happens if the nationalism continues to rise at home. Maybe Putin even has a stronger grip on power after this. Just kind of curious of your thoughts on that in general. So I don't think that this is really a Russian war so much as a Putin war. I think that if Yeltsin had not plucked Putin out of obscurity in 1999 and then declared him his successor, I don't think we would see this war today. And I think that is one of the problems in the argument that basically the U.S. flubbed and by expanding NATO, we created the conditions for this. I think that fundamentally, this is a great deal about Putin and uh, and his psychology. Now, I think You're right when you say that there are a lot of Russians who have supported Putin and have supported the war. I think that the polling more recently becomes complicated because, you know, if you get a phone call and uh, you're asked about your views about, you know, about uh, you are on recorded line. Yeah, yeah, you might not want to give, you know, a a measured response. Um, But having said that, you know, I think it's indisputably true that Putin for a long time 
well, that he has an awful lot of Russian backing. And he took over an economy that was cataclysmic, you know, a situation where life expectancy was tumbling. And he really did rebuild the Russian economy in ways that improved well-being and improved, you know, educational metrics, improved uh, health metrics, improved mortality metrics, uh, certainly improved living standards for Russians. And, and he gave people a sense of real hope. And I think people responded by investing a certain amount of trust in him. I think that that also makes him vulnerable now when the economy collapses and well-being suffers. I think that the, you know, there's a, something of a transactional relationship with the Russian public, and he did improve lives for many years, and now he is undermining those lives. And I think that, you know, it's not as if Russia is a democracy or something, but it's also true that there is some kind of relationship between public attitudes and the perceived legitimacy of a leader, how much scope they have. So I think that, you know, that does undercut him. And I mean, lastly, I would just say that, uh, you know, that if you control all news sources, That's as true. Putin does, um, <laughs> that, that really does tend to uh, reduce the scope for your average, you know, ordinary household in Smolensk or Novozubirsk to kind of understand the nature of the war right now in Ukraine. That's what I was going to say is from there's clearly information warfare going on on both sides with the Ukrainian government and the Russian government and other governments. But based on some of the reports that I've read and the tweets I've seen, there's a lot of Russians who don't actually understand the scope of what's happening. Um, and they're still buying the state media line of freeing. They're basically accusing Ukraine of being Nazis and having a Nazi regime with the Jewish president. So it's it's a sort of strange situation. I think to your point, like if the people don't have the information, it's not hard to take the leap to supporting a leader who is do, in their mind is doing something noble or good. Yeah. And, and that kind of reflects a larger narrative. You know, the, the communist bloc also controlled the media in in Eastern Europe, in, in Poland, or in Czechoslovakia, or in Mongolia. But people in those countries, they knew they were being repressed, and nobody credited the official media. And everybody always sort of, you know, assumed that anything in the, in the media was lies. In Russia, for a lot of ordinary working class families, they really do feel, I mean, they're manifestly living better than they were 20 years ago. Mm. And I think that that means that they are trusting of the state media in a way that polls in the 1980s were not, for example. So I, I want to zoom out a little bit. It appears to me that this is a transformational moment in global politics. There's some sort of realignment happening. Joe Biden used the phrase new world order, which set off the conspiracy theorists <laughs> um, earlier this week. But I think what he's getting at is the way that this has unfolded is... A, it demonstrates that very clearly that the United States is not the only, is not a unipolar power in the world anymore. So put that aside for a second. You mentioned Iraq earlier, which one of the things I've been thinking about, I think you and I probably come from similar places in the American left where the response to Iraq and Afghanistan and lies from the government and failures and misunderstandings of why we even there led the left and the Democratic Party in the United States to feel like America should have a smaller role in the world to the extent that, you know, I think the Democratic Socialists even called for us to leave NATO. And it feels like what Joe Biden has demonstrated for us here is that there is a role for America on the global stage, not necessarily front and center you know, with military interventions, but in sort of organizing a larger global coalition. So I guess I'm curious for you as, as someone who I think identifies as left of center, a progressive, a member of the Democratic Party, given this shifting global landscape, what do you see as America's role in the world in whatever this next chapter of geopolitics looks like? Have you thought about that? I think that the U.S. can and should play a significant role. And I, I think that one of the tragedies of Iraq is that we became too inclined to pull back and that hundreds of thousands of Syrians, for example, died as a result. You can also argue, I mean, look, what is happening in Ukraine now is Putin's fault, nobody else's. Mm -hmm. But I think it's also true in retrospect 
that President Obama, for whom I have enormous respect, that he did not respond as uh, fully as in retrospect he should have to the seizure of Crimea, to the Russian invasion of Eastern Ukraine, and also to you know Russian cyber hacking, for example, and, and to Chinese cyber hacking, that there was a perception of weakness on the part of foes, including Putin. And from Putin's point of view, you know, okay, he grabbed Crimea and yeah, there were sanctions, but they were worth the price. He waged war for seven years in Eastern Ukraine. And yeah, there were, again, there were sanctions. There were some hassles. There was a certain stigma, but again, it was worth it. And so, you know, I, I think that we did not adequately provide that kind of international leadership. And I think we, we should, because um, if it's not going to come from us, then it's not going to come from anybody. And, you know, there, there, obviously there are a million caveats and, you know, I, I thought the Iraq war was a catastrophe, but Syria was a moral catastrophe because of a failure to act. Bosnia. I mean, we, we go through these cycles. We, we became too engaged in Vietnam and Indochina. So then we were too hesitant in the Balkans and hundreds of thousands of people died there. And, um, you know, we were too engaged in Iraq and then too unengaged in, in Syria. Uh, you know, there are ways of, there's a balance that has to be drawn. It has to be very pragmatic, very evidence-based, not driven by ideology, but on a strong sense of what is possible. Mm. But we have a role to play in the world and can make a difference. So two quick follow-ups there. One, a friend of ours who has a podcast, they've been doing daily Ukraine coverage, Marshall Kozlov, he has invoked the old arsenal of democracy label as what he views as the role of the United States moving forward. Like in, in situations like Ukraine, we basically send arms to help them defend themselves. Um, as a as a country that sort of is something like a Western democracy, rather than sending military force as a country, we can support existing existing military forces within the countries. Does that resonate with you as some as a role for the United States? I think it's hard to make a blanket statement because yeah. so much just depends on the circumstances. And you know, if you take Syria, for example, then one of the problems and one of the reasons for President Obama's understandable hesitation was that some of the armed factions were did not like us really <laughs> evil. I mean, they yeah. were kidnapping journalists. Um, and and uh, so uh, you know, I I think one has to be really careful. In the case of Ukraine, I, you know, I, I think we should have provided lethal assistance to Ukraine uh, back in the Obama administration. But I also understand, you know, I agree with President Biden's reluctance to impose a no-fly zone. And I'm, I'm a little more ambivalent about, uh, you know, about the MiGs. Uh, but, uh, you know, I think it has to be done very carefully, looking at what the consequences will be in every case. And you know, and it's not just about democracies. I mean, some democracies do some really bad things, um, uh, especially to, you know, to minorities. Ethiopia made tremendous progress toward democracy and freedom, and then it uh, more recently has been engaging in what looks like a genocide against uh, people in the Tigray region. Uh, you know, in ways that have attracted much less uh, global outrage. So I guess I'd say, you know, it's it complicated. Depends. Yeah. <laughs> My second follow-up, and then I'll hand to Alex, although he may um, have something to say on this question too. So you mentioned Syria. President Obama famously drew a red line on Syria with chemical weapons. Chemical weapons were used and the United States did not intervene. It's the sh very short version of that story. I believe President Biden has now said that the use of chemical weapons by Russia in Ukraine would or should trigger a NATO response, essentially drawing his own sort of red line. Is that, A, do I have that right? You look like you might want to add something. So uh, he said that there would be a response, but he didn't specify that it would be a military response. Okay. So he preserved his ambiguity about and said that the response would correspond to the nature of the violation. And so, uh, you know, if 
uh, if Russia fires a artillery shell with sarin and, uh, you know, in some remote area and nobody is much injured, then, uh, you know, the implication was, well, maybe we'll see some additional sanctions or, you know, who knows what, maybe a minimal cyber attack somewhere. But, um, uh, you know, but he, he was, very, I think, very, very careful to preserve his uh, his flexibility there. That That's helpful. And I guess my question on my question is about red lines, um, because when when President Obama drew the red line on chemical weapons, I was I was grateful and I was proud that he was saying that, because to me, that should be a red line. I mean, chemical weapons were used against children in Syria. Um, but of course, you know, for for reasons that, frankly, I don't understand, I'm sure they're they're well documented. We we didn't other than, you know, the cost to the United States and our military, um, we didn't intervene. And so I guess I'm curious how you feel about the idea of red lines, the idea of saying as the United States or as NATO, there are certain things that we will not permit countries to do against them, against their own people or against as aggressors in, in other conflicts. Is there is there value to red lines or to your point, is everything so situationally specific that those kinds of statements aren't particularly useful? I think red lines have their use, but they one has to be exceptionally careful about imposing them because they will get tested. And you have to be, if you don't respond when that red line is crossed, um, then you leave everybody worse off. We do have a red line in place right now that there had been a lot of doubt about, and that is uh, NATO Article 5 and the notion that if any NATO member uh, was attacked, that all of NATO would respond and defend that country. And I mean, I think there was real doubt that if, uh, you know, Estonia, suppose Putin, um, you know, engineered some kind of um, ethnic uh, clashes in Estonia, a couple of, a few ethnic Russians were uh, killed, Putin crosses the border in one small part of Estonia and says he's only gonna stay there for a week, would NATO countries all really go to war with Russia over what was billed as a brief um, crossing of, a, of the line into Estonia? I don't know. And there was a lot of doubt about uh, that. Um, I think that today, uh, one thing Putin has done besides help you know, badly destroy much of his own military is he's hugely strengthened NATO and that now Article 5 mm -hmm. is real in a way that it was not a few months ago. And that if Estonia were attacked uh, today, uh, then NATO would genuinely defend it. And I think that, uh, you know, Biden has been very clear that, okay, we're, you know, we're not going to go into Ukraine, but you mess with, <laughs> you mess with Estonia and, and you're at war. And um, I think that kind of a red line uh, is quite useful. In There's been a debate about red lines in the case of Taiwan, you know, mm -hmm. right now there is not one. Um, should we say that, should we tell China that, okay, you uh, attack Taiwan and we will defend Taiwan? Um, um, you know, some people say that that would make China less likely to attack Taiwan. Um, maybe it might also feed the narrative in China that the West is trying to dismember China uh, and actually push it to take you know, steps that pressure Taiwan. So uh, I think we need to be really careful about red lines, I guess is what I'm saying, but uh, that they do have a role. Mm. Yeah, and my my next question I would say is uh, probably ultimately the biggest red line that has been proposed in this conflict. It's not been proposed by Biden, but it's been proposed by some on the left and some on the right, which is the no-fly zone. Uh, I know that you recently wrote uh, a piece on your Substack about this that I read uh, but before we kind of dive into that, could you just define, because it was funny, there was a poll in the United States, there's a poll somewhere that said, you know, it was like 70% of Americans support a no-fly no zone in zone. Ukraine, which of course, that sounds really nice, right? There's no bombers from either side flying, blowing people up. Uh, that's of course not what a no-fly zone actually entails. So could you just define what a no-fly zone is? And then I have a couple questions after that. Yeah. So uh, typically what a no-fly zone means is that, you know, the U.S. would uh, patrol the skies over a given region and uh, that it would shoot down uh, enemy aircraft that are 
you know, threatening, uh, uh, threatening anybody in that area. It's not that neat. We had no-fly zones over, um, you know, northern Iraq and the Kurdish areas uh, under Saddam Hussein. And in fact, you know, uh, Saddam, they sent civilian aircraft through there, you know, baiting us because they knew that we wouldn't, the U.S. wouldn't shoot down a, a plane full of civilians. And, um, you know, in fact, one can also impose no-fly zone in a sense through uh, surface-to-air missiles, uh, uh, keeping enemy aircraft out of an area. Uh, but uh, the, uh, you know, but that's the gist of it. And I think what a lot of the public doesn't understand is that that means if we were to impose a, a no-fly zone over Ukraine, that would mean that we are shooting down Russian aircraft. It would also mean that we would be shooting and destroying um, anti-aircraft batteries um, uh, operated by Russians, and we would be killing Russians. So we would be um, essentially starting a war with Russia uh, to deny them the ability to shoot down our aircraft. Yeah, and, and in terms of, uh, I mean, some people have made the, the case for it. I, I reread your piece, and it was actually almost the same as, uh, it was very close thinking to Rich Lowry, uh, who of course is the managing editor, I guess, editor-in-chief of National Review, uh, but what are your reasons why you you don't support the no-fly zone? It's um, it's funny because I've supported no-fly zones in a lot of other humanitarian crises. I supported no-fly zone over Darfur, um, uh, over Libya, um, and the you know the different. And I'd be open to uh, uh, one over Tigray, I suppose, in Ethiopia. You know, the difference is that there is nobody really to challenge it and that it wouldn't lead to a wider war. It would simply reduce um, uh, casualties or reduce, and, you know, and a genocide. In this case, if we were to impose a no-fly zone over Ukraine, we would be going to war with Russia and that would risk a huge escalation. Um, and uh, so we, you know, we weigh the benefits and, and costs. I think that the benefits of imposing a no, of the U.S. going in to impose a no-fly zone over Ukraine are uh, not all that great because uh, we can we can accomplish the same result of keeping Russian aircraft out with um, with uh, surface-to-air missiles and anti-aircraft batteries. Uh, and the costs, if we do send aircraft up there, are that we're going to be in a shooting war with Russia. Yeah, no, and it's a I you lay it out very bluntly, which I think is great because that's exactly what it is. And I think a lot of people are uh, kind of towing around the edges with that, and they they won't actually just say the meat of it, which is basically. Uh, and and to your broader point, it's even I mean the aircraft would be a serious escalation, but also attacking Russian anti-air defenses in Russia would be a whole nother uh, provocation escalation. And uh, that does lead to my next question that I wanted to ask about escalation. And there's uh, hasn't really been that much chatter about this, but actually, uh, I'll take that back because Biden has been talking about this a lot recently, but nothing has actually really happened, which is cyber attacks. Uh, so in terms of the, you know, obviously there's, uh, in terms of output from Russia, they have oil, they have some other natural resources such as nickel, which I know the price of nickel has skyrocketed recently, but uh, I feel like their, their easiest way to hit the United States is not, I very unlikely, I think they would attack U.S. military assets in a NATO country. I just think that's basically at this point off the table. But of course, they could attack our power grids. They could attack our water filtration systems through cyber attacks. Uh, I'm curious of why you don't think that we've seen much of that yet. And should we be very concerned that those major attacks might be coming either to you know critical infrastructure or the U.S. stock exchange, big businesses or things like that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, it's a good question. Uh, but by the way, I would also not rule out uh, to the degree you do attacks on NATO territory in the sense that I think it is not impossible that Putin would send a missile at a supply line in, you know, in, in uh, eastern Poland, taking mm -hmm. weapons to Ukraine. And then we would have to figure out, OK, if there if one missile hits eastern Poland, how do we respond? And uh, I wouldn't rule out the idea that there be a that there might be a test. And I think it's something NATO is quite worried about. Um, but you're right that cyber is the dog that has not barked, and uh, everybody is a little bit surprised about that. The Russian Russian hackers have uh, put back doors in all kinds of American 
computer networks um, so that they can activate them, activate malware uh, when they want to. And we put backdoors into all kinds of Russian and Chinese uh, computer systems so we can do the same to them. Um, the um, uh, I was talking to a Brazilian years ago and he was explaining how in some obscure small Brazilian city, the, uh, the grid went down and uh, they were trying to figure out how that happened. And um, it turned out that it was um, hackers. They weren't quite sure from which country who were kind of practicing because that that province in Brazil had a grid that was quite similar to that of the US. And they prefer to practice <laughs> oh, wow. in Brazil than in Vermont. <laughs> um, um, but, you know, the one of the so we have not uh, put pressure on Putin uh, by hacking into their computer systems, and they haven't uh, done the same to us. And I think it is because everybody is not quite sure what the escalation ladder is with cyber. Um, mm -hmm. We know that uh, you know if we kind of understand what happens if you know. Russia kills one of our diplomats somewhere, uh, then you know we'll probably kill one of theirs. Uh, we understand if you you know kick people out persona non grata, some spies. You want, we kind of understand in the military ranks, you know how the escalation works. We don't really under, we don't really have a clear sense of okay if Putin um, takes out uh, hospital computer systems and a bunch of people die in those hospitals, then you know, how, how should we respond? How do we respond? And so I think both sides are a little wary of that. I think the US is nervous about hitting Putin's um, or Russian computer systems, because we are more vulnerable than they are, because our everything we have is linked to the internet and is sort of easier to hack. Um, um, it probably would not be, if they do come after us, it would probably not be so much finance because I think our finance systems are a little better protected. Um, mm -hmm. I took some extra money out of the ATM just to, just to be sure. Just my, dad, to my dad told me to do the same thing and I thought he was crazy, but I did it anyway. <laughs> I, I, you know, um, seems like good insurance, but I think that's probably less likely than uh, some uh, electrical systems, uh, some hospitals. I think hospitals are taking out hospital networks is a good way of getting uh, attention. Um, and there is to some degree a problem with attribution, which is that if the grid fails in some random city in Florida, then we may be able to figure out where the hackers were from but mm -hmm. we may not be able to. And that issue of attribution all the way around is uh, kind of complicates. Uh, yeah, the, and of course, the, it could be Chinese hackers that you know make it look like Russia did it. And then yeah. we hit Russia, they hit us. And yeah, there's been a million different militaries. And, and, and that's where I think cyber gets really scary because again, you can, they, I mean, China could hack Russia and make it seem like it was the United States that did that. And then as you said, those escalation, that's not really built in or well known because there really has never been a major conflict like that so yeah it's uh hopefully it's not coming but yeah it is a really scary thought to kind of realize that those capabilities are there if i were north korea right now i would be trying to do some financial hacking to make money and then you know blame yeah. it on the russians or chinese <laughs> so um in our final final section here we've got two broad questions um the first is, is will be close to home for you. So I want to talk about journalists and the role of journalists in a crisis like this. Um, you've obviously been on the ground in many, many places in crisis in the middle of wars. And, you know, I also pulled this quote, which you'll, I'm sure you'll blush, but you, you've been described as the moral conscience of a generation of journalists. And what I've been thinking about is like, what is the actual role of a journalist in a crisis like this, where there is a clear aggressor? Um, this is not a both sides situation. Um, is the job of a journalist to be objective and describe exactly what is happening as best they can? Is it to promote um, the country that has been uh, that has been oppressed or is that it, or that or that is a victim of aggression? Is it to try to take down the aggressor in some way? Um, and I think you've got a unique take on this because you, you, you tend to have, when you report, 
um, I think you've been criticized in the past by being honest about who the good guys and the bad guys are. <laughs> um, so I'm hoping you can describe what's your philosophy on the role of journalism. I think it's really just to bear witness. And I think there is sometimes a temptation on the part of journalists to take sides in ways that are actually counterproductive. Mm. Um, when I report, when I lived in China in the in 1989 and reported on the Chinese army opening fire on the Tiananmen Square democracy protesters, there, you know, the, the Chinese government was lying through its teeth about this. It was said this was a counter-revolutionary rebellion. It said that the protesters were really violent. But protesters lie too. And if you've had friends who've been arrested or killed, then you exaggerate. And when you see a reporter, uh, then, you know, if you heard that a thousand people were massacred in Tianjin or something, then, you know, all of a sudden you're likely to say, yeah, you know, I saw it with my own eyes. And so we as reporters, I think, have to be, it's a really hard counterintuitive thing, but we have to be as skeptical of victims as we are perpetrators. And otherwise, we end up doing a disservice mm. to the injustices that we're covering and that we deeply care about. So in the case of Ukraine, you know, uh, I, obviously reporters, uh, you know, should feel deep compassion for what is going on around them. And I think they should cover it with a view toward conveying the suffering to the public, you know, knowing that that knowledge helps create a reaction, creates a response that can alleviate that suffering. But I think it's also really important that reporters try, even when they're being shot at, even when they're being bombed, to sustain enough distance, um, enough objectivity, enough skepticism of the people who are being shot at with them to maintain their credibility and to avoid uh, becoming, you know, partisans in a way that ultimately can actually hurt the cause that people are sympathizing with. Really quickly, are there any individual journalists or news outlets that you think are covering Ukraine really well that you look to to stay in the loop? Oh, um, you know, I, I think... I mean, look, I, I love the New York Times and the Washington Post, but they're doing a fantastic uh, job there. The the Kiev uh, Independent, Independent uh, yeah. is uh, doing a good job. Uh, and um, I, uh, a good friend, uh, uh, the photographer, Lindsay Adario, who took the photos for our, our book, Tightrope, uh, 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 and uh, who I dragged Oregon for that. Um, <laughs> she's in... Um, you know, she's in Ukraine now, has taken wow. some extraordinary photos, was almost killed. I'm terrified for her, but you can follow her on, on Instagram, for example. That's awesome. Um, so final question that we have is about the role of social media. Um, so there have been some incredible, horrific um, images, videos, um, accounts of what's happening. As we've mentioned before, some of this, it's unclear what is actually true and what is, um, in fact, so, some of the Ukrainian claims have proven to be uh, not what we thought they were um, initially. Um, but it does feel to me, you know, obviously this, we're in very early stages of this, but it does seem to me that part of the reason why the West was so quick to act is because regular people in Western countries like us were extremely outraged um, and rallied together. And when I go on a walk in Tigard, I will see little rocks painted in yellow and blue that say peace. I will see Ukrainian flags. Um, and it seems like social media has kind of created this momentum um, thousands of miles away from Ukraine in support of the Ukrainians. And that feels different than at least other conflicts that it feels like at least other conflicts, even if they have been on social media, they haven't caught fire in the same way that they, this has, at least in the West. I'm curious what you think about social media in the role of a crisis like this. And particularly like, is this the, is this what it's going to look like moving forward? Are we just going to see basically live streamed war on social media um, and what are the implications for that for for our decision making, um, particularly given this inability to verify factual information in real time? 
um, over social media. So that's a big category, but what are your reflections on social media? I think that social media can raise the costs of invasion, of aggression, of genocide, um, and pictures in particular and videos have a haunting power to make it very, very difficult for people to look away and forget about a crisis. And you know we've seen that regularly. <laughs> it's hard for a scribbler like me to admit, but but it's photos and it's videos that have that raw emotional power in a way that prose does not. Um, you know, one thinks of the uh, photo of the little boy Alan Kurdi on the beach, um, the little Syrian boy that changed European immigration policy. That photo, um, and. You know, conversely, I spent a lot of time covering the uh, genocide of the Rohingya in Myanmar. Uh, and, uh, you know, babies were being tossed on bonfires, but there were no photos, there were no videos. And if there had been, then we wouldn't have waited all these years to describe it as a genocide. And there would have been a much greater international response. So, you know, one of the lessons I think for brutal autocrats is um, you know cut off the internet in places that you are brutalizing and uh, you know seize cell phones and block social media because that is difficult to do um, I think that the rise of social media does um, make it a little bit harder to uh, to slaughter people to commit mass atrocities it's still yeah. I mean, Syria is a good example where a lot of people actually did have phones and were chronicling uh, abuses and President Assad still found it worth it because he thought otherwise he was going to be uh, out. Uh, but it does raise the costs. Um, and that, I guess the question for all of us is just to make sure that we're not being used and we're not uh, sharing images or videos that are doctored or that are uh, mislabeled and actually of some previous conflict. That's a, a great reflection point to leave us with. So Nick, thank you so much for, for coming on the Oregon Bridge. If there's folks who want to read your writing or stay in touch with you, they can't go to the newyorktimes.com anymore. Um, what's the best way to follow your work um, and stay in the loop? So um, uh, uh, Facebook, facebook.com slash Christoph, K-R-I-S-T-O-F, uh, Twitter, um, where I'm Nick Christoph. Instagram, Nick Kristoff, or indeed, um, as you say, I have a Substack uh, column that is, uh, I don't do very much with it, but it, it's kind of my way to scratch my journalistic itch right now. Awesome. Nick, thank you so much. And uh, we hope to talk to you again soon. Good to be with you. Take care now. <laughs>